Welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. Peter Chung is the man of the hour today, man, the creator of Aeon Flux, and uh, surprisingly, like, a whole lot of our, our childhoods and young adulthoods, uh, in, up to my early 20s for sure, man. Uh, let's jump into things right away. Peter, thank you so much. Uh, when we chatted last, uh, I asked you about the soundtrack uh, and the music of Aeon Flux because uh, the, the question I had was, like, you know, MTV, very famous, limited budget, did like 70% of that go to uh, the soundtrack to have an orchestra? And you revealed that it was one, it was one guy, Drew Newman, uh, who, who did it all. And two, there was a soundtrack forthcoming that you were excited about. Took a couple of years, but it's finally here. Yeah, so I was wondering, how did you get a hold of the box set? Did Waxwork reach out to you, or yeah. how did that happen? Yeah, yeah they, they just sent it to us. We have we uh, did a couple episodes with Eastman and Laird, the cre the creators of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Kevin Eastman has been doing work with them by uh, doing uh, album art and things for these uh, movie soundtracks, doing fresh uh, Turtles artwork there. He reached out uh, and, and told us, a, the guy at Waxwork, mentioned that and i was like you know what we need we need peter chung back on the the channel we need to desperately find a way to to get <laughs> yes. uncle pete on the channel again and, and they sent us this box set which is just freaking beautiful man uh did you have any hand in doing the design work on this thing yeah it was a big collaboration so drew newman just out of the blue he called me and let me know that they were doing a a box set soundtrack which had never been released released before and yeah. so uh i thought what's typical in a lot of these cases is that somebody just wants you to do wants you to do them a favor by providing artwork and i don't know if i mean you're both artists people ask you to draw stuff for them and they think that it yeah, yeah it's <laughs> it's it's easy for you and uh they want you they want you to do them a favor right. <laughs> And I was a little reluctant at first. I thought it was going to be one of these things like, okay, what, is this, what are these people looking for? I, I mean, I've got some pieces of artwork uh, from the show, production stuff that ha hadn't been published before. And I said, well, you know, I can just offer them, him this stuff. But then he, you know, he said that I looked at their catalog and, you know, they, they have real budgets and real production values in terms of the way that they create these collections for real diehard fans of... Old, I mean, they do a lot of uh, obscure horror movies and release the soundtracks for old TV shows. And and so, you know, when they said they wanted to do this, I said, well, yeah, I mean, uh, um, be a great chance to show off a lot of this stuff, which could, because a lot of the artwork, you know, it, frankly, it, that I do in development just never gets seen by anybody. Yeah. So it was a, it was a chance to share that. I mean, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of that on Instagram, like, you know, sharing a lot of the uh, unpublished work. But uh, this was a chance to do something, you know, in a full package. Um, and, and, and it would be a real kind of archival uh, collector's item. It's absolutely beautiful. Like the production, it, it seems like they went all out. Um, are you pretty happy with how it turned out? Yeah, yeah, I'm very happy. Uh, well, it's funny because at, at the beginning it was just going to be the six discs and then they decided they wanted, because I was giving them all this artwork and they said, well, you know, we should put, put together a booklet. Yeah. And the booklet started out being, I think it was 16 pages at first and it turned into 24 and then eventually, you know, it ended up being 40 pages. 
Um, was it was they, stuff like the storyboards here? Did anybody ever see this? Was this ever published on paper for the public? No, I mean it did show up online for a couple of interviews that I've done over the years, but uh, not not printed and and released on something you could buy. It's just it's such an amazing document to have, you know, certainly as Peter Chung fans to to see your actual hand. I mean, animation, very collaborative process, uh, but to see the things that you put down on paper. And I do wonder, there's several names that are mentioned here as people who are drawing different eight, eight eons and things. And so like a piece like this, is this you? Yeah, you know, that's an old sketch, but I just uh, cleaned it up and finished it recently you know I, I wanted to put up on my instagram but it was just a pencil sketch that i had lying around and like a lot of stuff i enjoy the the conceptual part of it i don't really enjoy the finishing the you know m making a finished illustration because you know it's a lot of painstaking and i don't, I, I feel like i don't have a steady enough hand to, to ever be an illustrator the great thing about being an animator is you can do a lot of rough drawings and you can just kind of leave them rough and somebody else will come come around and clean them up which is what i like to do which is what i think a lot of animators like to do and um uh but you know working on a cintiq uh it it allows me to do kind of pseudo inking i mean you know digital right. inking yeah because i could never you know i would never be able to ink something traditionally Sure. My hand just isn't steady enough to do that. Uh, where was this picture taken? That, you know, that's an old picture, but uh, at one of the studios where I was, you know, I might have been working on a commercial at the time, but it was a, in, the, in the middle of production at a, an animation studio in Korea. Just so cool to see all this stuff. Uh, are, are these the original designs? Some of them are, yes. Yeah. Some of them are absolutely from the original model sheets. And, you know, because it was a small production, very often what happens in um, animation studios is that they'll start off with a couple of model sheets, turnarounds of the characters just to show what the costume looks like. But then as scenes get animated, then poses that are being used in the animation that are particularly useful end up being used as model sheets. So some of those poses are scenes that ended up on film, which you know, then got turned around and turned into model sheets. It's a very complex character, especially when you start getting into the, uh, how the gizmos on the knees work and things. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff to wrap around this character in three dimensions. It's extremely am ambitious work. Well, you know, I find that you need to keep pushing your ability to draw, especially to turn things in space and the more you do it if you're doing it all day long you get really good at it and so I don't know how it is with you guys but at the beginning of the day I you know I have to draw a lot of bad drawings you know for about an hour or, or, or two hours before I start to produce anything good but then at the end of the day after you've been drawing for eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours then you know you feel like you can draw anything and you know it's that constant need to um, exercise basic drawing, uh, drawing muscles, put it that way. Um, the problem I have with a lot of TV animation is that 
they they dumbed down the model sheets to make them things that anybody can draw right. even people who aren't who, who don't have any drawing ability they can still draw them they're, they're almost like foolproof character designs and um i just feel like you're never going to get better as a draftsman if you're only going to draw s stuff that never challenges you it it does seem like you always push yourself too i you know there's very few morsels of interviews with Peter Chung uh, on, on the net. Very few in video, but you could you could uh, find some in text and things. And uh, early on with a Aeon Flux, uh, this is after Rugrats and some of that other stuff that you were doing before then, which those character designs, it's so cool to see your designs for like Tommy Pickles and things because you have to draw through. Like that's a part of the animation uh, process is drawing through and seeing how you... Um, put those characters together, but then I remember seeing parts where you're talking about you were done. Like, I'm done with babies. Like, I need to I need to stretch these characters. I need to draw some adults, and 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 with you know limbs that can actually grab a doorknob and things like that. And then when it came time to do, I guess it's season three is when we start to get to talkies with uh, Eon Flux. Uh, the the conversation uh, you would have. Uh, at least in some of the interviews would be you were like done with the violence uh you did a lot of really cool action stuff in the silent um episodes and mtv seemed to lean on let's let's amp up the sex let's tone down the violence and you were super excited about that you were sort of done with the action part so it always seemed like you're always pushing for something new maybe even a little rest well Actually, it was much more the idea of it needing to be able to engage a viewer without being well animated. Because I, I, I know from experience from working in TV animation for years before uh, um, doing Eon Flux is that the animation is never going to be, is never going to live up to, you know, what you have in your mind. And so I just kind of gave up the idea that uh, we were going to have a lot of great animation in the show. And so I really focused on the writing um, in, in terms of creating interesting structures and in creating interesting, um, well, ways of telling a story that would be um, oriented to an adult audience. And, and be, well, here's the thing is because, you know, actually Eon Flux was the first scripted adult non-comedy um, dramatic series. So there was a lot of discussion at the time about what what made something an adult show. And, you know, the, the most obvious answer that most people gave was that, well, you know, it just needs to be, just has to be, have more graphic sex and violence. And to me, that was never my approach. I, I never thought that what made something more adult was it had more sex and violence, you know. And, and th there's a lot of examples of, I think, you know, very juvenile stories just because they have a lot of graphic sex and violence it doesn't make them more adult. It's just, it's just more graphic, but, but they're still children's stories. So the, the thing that I focused on was things which you could never do telling stories for kids, um, which involved a lot of um, moral ambiguity and characters having to um well first of all you know not defining a hero and a villain 
and good versus evil and making every situation, every story, um, in a sense, define its own morality. <laughs> um, I was thinking about that a lot. Um, I, I was thinking a lot about how, uh, how the same character could be somebody that you, um, you identify with um, or that you oppose, um, depending on how you interpret their actions. And um, I, know, I know this sounds very academic and very uh, kind of... It's what the channel's about. Don't even question yourself. <laughs> Keep going. Yeah, so, um, so I, I was looking at a lot of... Um, at the time, I was very influenced by the writings of Dashiell Hammett. And I was taking a lot of inspiration from uh, a lot of his um, way of having characters do things that you think are motivated by one goal. But as the story progresses, the intent or the goal or the motivation shifts. And not only does it shift in terms of what the character needs to do, but also it, in terms of how the reader or how the audience perceives their motives. And those are things that, you know, you can't play around with when it comes to telling a, a story for kids because it will just confuse them. Um, but I, 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 you know, I tried to put as much of that as possible into the show. I think that in some cases it backfired because I think that people, <laughs> I think that a lot of people tuning in who are just expecting to watch a half hour of, of fun animation, you know, found the stories um, confusing um, and maybe even thought that it was the fault of the, you know, the director, me. Um, There's even a, there was even at the time a review, there weren't that many reviews in newspapers, but there was one that came out in the LA Times, which said that the director was lazy because he hadn't figured out who was good and who was bad in the story. <laughs> Peter, how do you, uh, when you see a, a criticism like that, and it yeah. sort of reflects your intent that you didn't want to define these characters as good and evil, um, and yet it's kind of a negative, you know, it's a criticism. How, how, do you, how yeah. does that make you feel? Do you kind of go like, well, I did what I wanted. This person didn't like it, but well you know i'm not like a lot of people who say that they don't read reviews i, I read reviews and I, I i read discussions whenever something of mine is uh released i'm very much interested in the the feedback i get from viewers and um what you find is that there's always going to be people who hate your stuff for, for one reason or another and and they'll always come up with a way of coming up with rhetoric to defend their dislike. And that's fine because, you know, I'll be very honest. I can be the same way. I think that the reason why people like things or dislike things in the end does not have very much to do with rational reasons. Um, it's an emotional response. And then they use their rhetoric as a way of justifying their emotional response. Um, but that's, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact quote. I think it was Kafka who said, uh, it is not wisdom that men seek, but rather the justification for what they happen to cherish. 
and uh, yeah, I think that's true. When you're coming up with a, with a, such a revolutionary kind of series, and you are playing with ambiguities, and uh, there's there are themes that start to show up over the course of episodes and things. How, when you're writing these, I, th I believe you wrote like eight out of ten uh, for for the. I think you had some some extra help uh, doing an episode or two. Uh, like, how do you hedge against pretense? Do you do you have a lot of uh, people that you trust around? Well, that's a difficult thing to answer um, simply. It's a very that's a very complicated. I mean, you know, I could spend hours talking about just that um because there are so many factors that go into you know what makes you decide to tell a story a certain way and um for me i always try to start from theme you know i, I think about and this is the way i teach storytelling as well is is that you know i imagine the experience that i want the audience the viewer to have especially at the end of watching something that I've done. So at the end of an episode, what, what is the feeling or state of mind that I want to leave my audience in? And then in a sense, I try to reverse engineer whatever kind of series of events is going to bring about that state of mind, which is the thing that you're trying to achieve. One thing that I tell my students is that, you know, don't focus on the period of time when your audience is watching your film because in the case of students it might be just five minutes if they're making a, sh if a student short um or for the tv episode it might be 11 minutes for a kids show or it could be 22 minutes but even if it's 22 minutes it's just 22 minutes and you know don't focus on just those 22 minutes or five minutes um because after those minutes are, are over then um you know, you. If if all you're focused on is the time when your your film is on the screen for, then you're really selling yourself short because you know it's the time after the film is finished playing and and the viewer is left thinking or um, remembering the experience that they had. That that's what I that's what I care about and that's what I tell my students to focus on. Is how is it. How's the experience of watching your film going to affect them after the film has been turned off? And I think the same thing should apply to, you know, maybe it's a little bit different for things like paintings or books or illustrations. Um, I think it's the fact that film is an ephemeral medium is in, in the sense that it unfolds in time and that you can't really grasp any particular image. It's just, it flashes on the screen and then it's gone. And I think that in a way that's what appeals to me about it, it you know, in the sense that it is, it's, uh, it has an elusive quality to it, you know, which, which I think that, um, I think we talked about this a little bit. Like when I do illustrations, I feel like what I drew on the page is what you get. But I feel like when I make a film, what you get is not what you drew on the page. It's something else. It's something, you know, the, the interaction of all the different elements, sound and color and movement, um, creates an impression that is more than some, the sum of its parts.
As we go through this, Peter, if any of these uh, images or episode recaps and things call anything to mind, please let us know. Like one of the questions I had from reading this book was how much was uh, how much did you inform Drew Newman in a direction to go, or did you have a vision for the sound before he came on board? You know, I trusted Drew completely. I mean, he's he has a background in animation and filmmaking before he turned to music, and so he's really. Um, you know, he's really a storyteller in the way he uses sound. And the first Liquid TV shorts that we did, he not only did the music, he did all the sound design. And he, he went out and he recorded like real live guns and he recorded um, animal sounds. Um, he went all over the place with, with, with his tape recorder and um, just created a library. And, you know, he was um, fairly new to, to um scoring animation and so he you know just like me i was just um trying every aspect of doing a show um because normally if you you know if you're doing a tv show you're not animating and you're not designing characters you, you know you're, you're handing off a lot of that stuff to to other people but um in the same sense that you know i just wanted to have my hand in everything um Drew was the same way. And so I just kind of, to answer your question, I just left him alone to come up with his way of doing it. And um, he would play back things. And, you know, in general, everything was great. I just, I, I never gave him any kind of notes. I, it just, you know, what, whenever, <laughs> he just understood. We were just on the same wavelength. He just understood what I was trying to do. And he understood what it required. And then when he played it back to me, it was always way better than what I could have imagined or what I could have asked for. And that's the best kind of collaboration. You, you mentioned your students. And I feel like when we did our first shoot interview, it's almost like we mistimed things because you didn't have a Patreon at that moment, uh, but you do now. And it was released very soon after uh, we did the shoot interview. So is that where some of your students get your guidance? Well, I do have a few. I do have one tier of uh, on my Patreon where, where people can have one on one discussions with me and they show me their work and I give them critiques. Um, but that's not most of them. I mean, most of them are just interested in um, supporting my work. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm developing an original uh, animated series and um, I'm trying to I'm, I'm trying to launch it independently, and so I need the, uh, some support to be able to achieve that. Tell everybody what that Patreon is. Like, I, I want to I see this film, so we need to support Peter Chung on this quest. Well, it's just Patreon slash Peter Chung. So um, it's pretty easy to find. Um, the, lowest, the lowest donation is $5 a month, and it goes up to $100. Um, at $100 a month, you get an original signed animation cell that was actually used in production. And uh, those are running out. So, um, um, and I'm not adding any more to the, uh, to the catalog because the best pieces are being auctioned off. So um, it's a rare chance to be able to get some original art, you know, at a, I, mean, I, th I think a very, fair price 100 bucks is so. a steal for 
or yeah, something yeah. like that. And then there's some friends showing up on Instagram who, who are showing, showing off their cells and stuff. Peter, do you think some of the success of Aeon Flux, like you've talked about um, Drew Newman having, you know, kind of new to this, but doing everything himself. And you did a lot of this yourself. I wonder if, do you think that's a contributing factor to Aeon Flux having the longevity it's had to having the quality that it is that you're kind of a small team and your hands are really all over it? Yeah, I think that's true for any kind of animated show, animated product, or, you know, even any kind of artistic uh, series uh, that gets remembered and makes a mark is that, you know, it really bears the stamp of the original creator. You know, the, the, you know the, you, there's an identifiable uh, sensibility um, you know, my, when I see films of filmmakers that I like, you know, you, you feel at the end of them that you know that person, even though, you, you know, you've never met them. And I kind of wanted to give that kind of experience to, to my viewer, in the sense that um, I mean, maybe it's, it's strange that it's considered an unorthodox way to approach making TV shows, but, um, um, you know, it, it always has to come from someplace personal. Mm -hmm. And it's the exception these days when somebody, you know, points to somebody's work and says, Oh, well, this seems really personal. What you're doing seems really personal. And that, you know, that should be the norm. And I, I don't know why that's, you know, considered such a um, rare trait for a lot of commercial entertainment but, but sadly it is when when uh when we last spoke and you were talking about maybe launching a patreon whatever you also were talking about nfts as being a possible uh a possible uh sort source of income and 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 that ain't happening. yeah 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 so that was um you know it's funny you know because i started talking earlier about um using rhetoric to justify something that you like. And obviously, you know, the idea of NFT is the way of making money. And um, I actually, what my first reaction to the idea of NFTs is that, you know, this is completely st stupid and um, backward. And um, it's just this completely made up. Uh, I mean, because the idea is that, you know, you're not really actually buying anything when you buy an NFT. You're just, you know, buying the proof that you own something. But the thing that you own is not actually owned by you. It's it's something that's freely available to, to everybody because, you know, we're talking about digital artwork. Um, but, you know, a friend of mine, Robert Valley, had had some success selling NFTs. And so, um, you know, I looked at his work and some other artists whose work I admired and they were doing it. And I thought, well, you know, maybe there's a way of thinking about this that would make it make sense to me. And where I ended up with on that is um, I really don't think that most of the places, the platforms that are selling NFTs are going about it the right way, because what they're doing is that they're treating it like traditional art in the sense that what they're doing is they're releasing new pieces and offering them for sale on the day that they they release them. And that's wrong. That's not the way to sell NFTs. The, the, the thing to do is to create art, release it into the wild, let it go viral, 
and build up a demand for it, create images that some people are, are going to download and put on their T-shirt or, you know, tattoo on their arm or whatever. And to the point where, um, you know, I say this because <laughs> um, I see some of the things that I've made, like the Eon Flux, the eye, Oh, yeah. that you just showed in the in the storyboard yeah. um you know there are people on instagram with tattoos of that you know that's a viral image that i created absolutely um unfortunately i don't have the rights to it because mtv owns it but if i could create a viral image that had that kind of demand um i mean if i had if i had the the rights the ownership of that image and i could sell the nft of it then you know it would be valuable to people because it's something that a lot of people want and a lot of people recognize. It doesn't make sense to offer an NFT of an image that nobody has ever seen, which is what a lot of these galleries are doing, these platforms are doing. Sure. So that is that was my strategy, which was to create images or clips, because um, some of the Robert Valley pieces are, are actually animation clips. And so I was thinking about creating these animation clips and posting them online, maybe on YouTube or maybe on Instagram. And and the challenge would be to create something that would cause somebody to look at it and want to share it, because that's how something goes viral. So if you can create an image or create a clip that immediately makes somebody want to share it, um, then you would create a demand. Um, and then it would make sense to then, you know, after months or, you know, maybe even years is then um, offer somebody ownership of that clip. Um, and that's the only way it would make sense to me. Sure. But, you know, but 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 with the whole collapse of crypto, I mean, I, I, I've stopped thinking about it, but but sure. that, that that was my idea. Whenever we see these uh, like the storyboards that are in here. Um, what does that represent? Do you have like a hundred times this many storyboards? Like, is there a giant volume potentially of these storyboards, like a huge collection that could be made? Well, um, you know, I posted a lot of my storyboards on Instagram. I, I um, do a lot of, uh, I do a lot of rough storyboards, which I wouldn't release and that you know they're not the, the idea behind storyboards is um i used to collect storyboards from artists that i liked because when especially when i was working on transformers um very often the storyboards would look way better than the the finished episodes and um it was just always i always felt like it was a shame that the artwork, the output of these very talented artists, storyboard artists, was never ever going to get seen by the public. Um, and so storyboards are, um, I think that there's a lot more interest these days in it because just the availability of the process of uh, animation making to everybody, there's, you know, there's tons of tutorials and and um you know their their books of how how animation is made i mean I, i'm not sure exactly what your question was like uh, are, are there a lot of are there a lot of stacks of storyboards yes there are <laughs> <laughs> i think um, we'd like to see but, those in a book form yeah i want a 400 page version of this book i guess is what i'm asking <laughs> 
You know, I'm kind of ambivalent about that because, you know, the, the storyboards are, um, they're, they're very much misunderstood by a lot of people who don't, and even people working in animation, I, I find, um, don't have a true appreciation of what makes a good storyboard. Because um, a storyboard can look beautiful on the page, doesn't mean it's a good storyboard. Um, there were examples of that. I was listening to the audio commentary of Eon Flux, and you were talking about commissioning Paul Galassi, famous comic artist, yeah, to do yeah. storyboards. And and uh, we were look during that episode, and then you said, uh, "Yeah, we had to reboard all of it." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would have thought that Paul Galassi, looking at his comics, because his comics are very very cinematic, and you know, sometimes they do flow like storyboards um i mean you know he's from the whole steranko school of uh visual storytelling um him and uh the other comic book artist actually we hired a few comic book artists john watkins was another one um and eric canetti and you know he ended, he ended up being really good um but for the most part it wasn't something that translated into something that would work on film. And so uh, a lot of um, people just looking at a storyboard, this is one of the things that I teach is that um, if there's something interesting in every panel of your storyboard, it's not gonna be interesting when you see it on film. And in order for something to play well on film, your storyboard has to include shots of nothing you have to be able to use negative space. And the problem I have with a, you know, it, it's time based negative space, in the sense that you're, you're um, creating silences in the same way that a composer uses silence to give emphasis to, you know, certain moments in, in their composition, um, film works the same way. And so um, I suppose you could look at a storyboard and just appreciate it for its own qualities as uh, a series of, of uh, you know, breaking down an action through a series of pictures. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to good, make a, a good piece of film. Sure, sure. Uh, one of the things that fascinated me too, listening to the uh, audio commentary track, was that uh, you guys sometimes had a hard time remembering if uh, something cool that was happening in the film was a discovery of the storyboard artist or if it was actually written into the script so well that happens i mean that's that always happens that's that, that's always going to happen yeah um so um a lot of a lot of animated shows these days you know especially a lot of the gag based shows they're not scripted right um the storyboard artists are just handed an outline and then um, maybe they have a discussion with the with the director, and then the storyboard artist just comes up with a lot of you know most of the business, most of the things that the characters are actually going to do. Um, I don't like working that way. I th I think that it's very inefficient. You can kind of get lost, um, wasting time doing things, um, creating interesting bits of action or business that don't fit into a coherent narrative. So uh, I always write everything down um, 
to a very, very fine level of detail. Even if it's just purely visual. Uh, like, for example, the Eon Flux pilot, that was all scripted. It was like a 20-page script where every single little thing, like every single time she lifted her gun and turned her head, it was all written down. You mentioned Robert Valley, uh, and I th I'm pretty sure he worked on Eon Flux a little bit. Uh, he, he he did a lot of work on it. Okay, and I'm wondering, uh, you hear this often on commentary tracks when it comes to animation where the producers are in there, and they can identify artwork because there's a guy who's great at effects, this dude who's good at guns, there's a guy who draws the girls better, like this and that. Uh, are there some names that you could call out like what what did robert valley do as opposed to you know your, your your general guys who who were the cool effects men well robert you know robert is a director and so he's uh he was a storyboard artist that that's what he did on the show mm -hmm. um and you know he eventually he directed one of the episodes um sort of co-directed it with me but you know he, he basically directed it and by directing when it comes to TV animation, you know, storyboarding it is, you know, maybe 80% of what a director does. So um, I did have people on the crew who were especially good at certain things, uh, drawing characters. You know, you know, the comic artist, Tony Salmons? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So he worked on the show as a character designer. Um, and... I had a Japanese animator um, named Osamu Tsuriyama, and he was able to do everything. He could do storyboards, um, props, and characters. He ended up, <laughs> we ended up using him <laughs> as a prop designer, and he was really miserable doing that because, uh, and it was kind of too bad because he was the best person we had on our crew who could draw props, but he hated doing it. Um, unfortunately, he was just uh, too good at it for us to not not make him do that. <laughs> <laughs> How about the backgrounds, man? So super unique. You're inventing everything. Uh, was was that your uh, is that your hand? Well, well the, no, I, I did the backgrounds on the first pilot, but then after that, uh, I hired this architectural designer. He was a, he was he wasn't an architect himself, but he was an architectural illustrator. And so he understood architecture in a way where he would draw a design and it would be something you could actually go out and build and made perfect sense. Um, you know, you could rotate it, uh, which, which is, um, I mean, you could do it very, very easily, you know, without, I mean, I see some background designers, they have to um, create grids and floor plans and everything he could just do it off the top of his head he was he was amazing that way um tom McClure, tom McClure, yeah tom mcclure is his name here's some of, here's some of those backgrounds right here man actually this is a this is an early piece huh yeah so that was from the first so that was mine so that was yeah. from the pilot episode so for the box set you know i i cleaned up a lot of the artwork i, I cleaned it up digitally because when we did the original show because we had such a low budget all of the animation was drawn at a six field which means like literally that size. Yeah. A little bit bigger than a storyboard, but the final animation was drawn that size. And so when we had to, um, when we went to go and publish the, this stuff for this uh, 
release, I had to um, do a lot of digital retouching. That's really fascinating. I remember seeing my first uh, Bill Plimpton originals, and when he was doing all the animation himself, like with the color pencil joints, and it, uh, just I think they were probably a six field. That's, that, that surprises me to hear for Aeon Flux because of the detail. Especially, like, it yeah. It seems so detailed. Yeah, yeah, like mountain Well, not, not, not this stuff. I mean, that was later, but I'm, yeah. t I'm talking about the first, the first pilot episode right. that we did. So these pieces, is, is that your ink line? Is this you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was originally done for the VHS release. That was actually used for... Uh, there were three VHS tapes that came out, and that was for the second one. Right, I see. Great colors on these. Yeah, absolutely stunning. Does Do you work with MTV to to put release a set like this box set, or is that something that Wax works? No, with? Wax work. Yeah, no, Wax work cleared it with MTV. And then um, I never talked to MTV about it. I, I just dealt with Wax work. Um, I mean, they're in the business of approaching studios and networks and getting the rights to, to the music. Right. And, and I guess the artwork for the packaging. Yeah, it's just, it's just gorgeous, man. They, they really went all out with the stuff. But, uh, you know, we were talking some storyboards earlier, and somebody made us a zine of uh, your, your Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles storyboards for the, for the intro sequence right here. Must have been 85, 86, something like that. 87, 88, probably. 87, maybe? Okay. And we no, no, wait, no, 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 you're right. Uh, it was before Cops, so must have been 86, 87. We were talking with uh, Eastman and Laird uh, just a couple of weeks back, and, and uh, they actually didn't know that you were the guy. They loved Eon Flux, but they didn't know that you did so much work on that show because beyond this creating character designs like uh, the Krang body and and uh, April O'Neil like you did so much work on that was were you a part of um, Murakami Wolf or a freelancer yeah. yeah I was working for Murakami Wolf and it's funny because at the time when I took on that job I just thought you know I felt sorry for the toy company, you know, for putting all this <laughs> money into this ridiculous project. Because who, who the hell was going to watch a show called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Um, it's so funny. So, uh, so you're the guy storyboarding the the intro sequence, super iconic. Uh, was the was the song completed when you? Yes. This, yeah. So you had that track to listen to. Yeah. And was there any instruction? Uh, is there like a amount of seconds that it needs to take up or? Well, you just like with all animation, uh, if you ha if you're working from a track and in an American studio, you're always recording the dialogue first. Right. So in the case of this opening titles song, they had read the track onto exposure sheets. So what you do is that you you write down on, on an exposure sheet, which has one line for every frame of film, and you show where each syllable hits. And that way you can time out, you know, you can tell that it takes six frames to say this one word, you know, and then there's a pause that lasts four frames, and then there's another word. So yeah, you, you're working to that. 
and and is that your whole instruction or or um and then you just use your intuition like okay we need to introduce the characters in a cool way like this when well the lyrics to the song was um introducing the character so it's said I, I don't remember the lyrics it's such a long time ago but uh peter i think you know the lyrics is this a, <laughs> no, sing, sing the song for the people man <laughs> we'll make an nft of it <laughs> it'll, go, it'll go viral <laughs> but uh you see these little instructional pieces like which turtle is which did you create the logo no no okay. um i i came up with the idea of the the logo mutating because yeah. I, you know, I wanted to reflect the idea of mutants. Right. Do you remember responding to those comics, good or bad? Like, I, I assume that you got a handful of the turtles comics whenever it was time to work on something like this. Yeah. But you know, the comics have almost nothing to do with the TV show. I mean, in terms of the tone or the audience, I mean, this is for kids. Yeah. And the comics are not for kids. And so uh, it was just um, the thing that I didn't understand was that they were turtles and yet they never retracted into their shells. Right. And at first I had done some drawings of, you know, how they were going to pop in and out of their shells and said, no, no, they don't do that. And I go, well, what's the point of them being turtles? <laughs> what was your job title for Moria Comic Wolf? Because if you're doing character designs. Well, I, you know, it wasn't clear. I, I was brought on to do character designs and so i i thought that that's what i was was a character designer but then they gave me other stuff to do like i ended up designing props and sometimes i designed backgrounds and you know then they had me do the opening titles yeah. so when i saw the show and saw that they credited me as art director it kind of surprised me did you do other shows for murakami wolf was was cops through them no, Cops was uh, Deke, D-I-C. Right. And it's funny, like, after seeing this and just sort of knowing that you had your hand in it, when, whenever you watch that intro and you see, like, the human form of Splinter, like, you see Peter Chung's hand in there. <laughs> you really, really do. Peter, when you revisit your work from, from the past like this or, or Ian Flux, um, are you critical of that? Are you, how, how do you judge that at this stage? Yeah, you can't help but be critical. I mean, very, very often you have to make compromises and very often you're, that's all you see is you see the places where you didn't get to do what you wanted to do and it's something else instead. And um, fortunately, there, there isn't a lot of that with the on because that was the case where I got to do, at least with the Liquid TV shorts, on the half hours, I can't go back and watch those shows because we had to make so many compromises because we got so many notes from MTV about that. Um, and there would be a lot of arbitrary sounding stuff too, like the size of knife blades in characters' hands. Uh, the guns always have to be in like safe firearm position and things. Can't, can't be pointing guns at, at people. Yeah. And, and you had the, there were all kinds of creative ways to point a gun to imply that it's pointing at somebody, but it could never be like both in one frame or something. Yeah, there was a lot of that. Uh, it was like everything that we, well, well it was, when I first did the first Liquid TV shorts, um, it was my chance to do something that was completely free of all of those kinds of 
broadcast uh, standards and practices notes that I, was, I used to get working on kids' TVs yeah. shows. So I put all of that into the sh into the show, <laughs> and then when people saw that, it focus tested well. Yeah, and that's why they ordered the half hour series. And then when it went to the series, it said, "Okay, you can't do any of that. Any of the stuff that the focus test groups liked, you could you weren't allowed to put into the actual show." Do, do you think that some of that is a consequence of uh, the Beavis and Butthead fire, fire, fire stuff and kids burning down their houses and trailers and things like that? Because, you know, it's in tandem. Beavis and Butthead was, was catching fire and then MTV was catching a lot of hail from uh, middle America and things. Well, you know, every network has a standards and practices department where you have people whose sole job is to catch things that they think could cause problems and that's what their job is and so they have to justify <laughs> their their job and so they come up with stuff you know which um you know it's just com completely capricious doesn't have anything to do with anything it's just just one person's gut reaction to something on a particular day right we we know your body of work uh, really really well really well, and I wonder, like your natural drawing style, is it closer to Aeon Flux? Uh, have we seen what your natural drawing style is? Uh, what's what comes closest? Well, I, I I think about my audience for everything that I do. So if I'm working on a kids show, um, you know I. I um, I'm not trying to, you know, in spite of what people might think, it's like, you know, I'm not trying to push my own way of drawing. Right. Um, and I, I don't think that an artist should be thinking consciously about, you know, trying to draw in their style. Right. Um, it, the idea is weird to me that you would do that. Um, I just draw in the way that feels natural. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it has to do with avoiding things that I don't like to see. Um, for example, you know, it, there's some there's some artists work that just for some reason or another, just um, you have a bad reaction to. <laughs> and I remember things that um, I respond negatively to and, and try to avoid the same kinds of traits in my own work. So it's sort of like drawing is very much like walking through a minefield because there are all these traps that you can fall into that would make your your drawing look look crappy. That's so much fun. Before we get out of here though, like, uh, and before we turn the cameras on, you mentioned something about digital comics. Yeah, you know, there's some, something I wanted to talk about because, you know, I'm really, uh, I, I kind of feel like comics in their printed form is an obsolete medium. I, I, I really feel like that. I, I feel mm -hmm. like I, you know, even when I get a comic book story is I would prefer to read it on my computer screen or on my tablet. I, you know, I have a tablet. That I use to um, browse and to look at videos, but also to look at comics, and I prefer to do that rather than have a physical 
book with pages that I have to turn. And um, it would, it, I know that people who are into comics consider the layout of the page to be a really critical element in, you know, in um, a comic book illustrator's ability to tell a story visually. But, you know, to, to me, it's just something that is born out of a limitation that has to do with you know the the reality of having to publish something in I don't know I don't know how long a comic book is like twenty pages, um, and there's no reason to continue to be um, affected by that limitation you know which is completely you know imposed on the art form um, by something that you know is 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 obsolete in my you know in my yeah. view. Um, but um, one thing that always bothered me about when I see comics released in digital form is that they're no better than the printed version. And um, I have no idea what's going on with digital comics these days, but I always wondered why somebody doesn't put out something like a um, director's cut version of a comic book, which you could do on if you released it digitally. And by that, I mean, um, you can read the comic book in its finished version. You can read it in its inked version without colors. You can read it in its pencil only version. You can read it in its layout version with just the, the rough pencil layouts. And you could do this um, very easily in this in a way that, for example, you know, with DVDs, you used to be able to watch it with a director's commentary track on or off. Right. Um, um, because the thing is, in the creation of a comic book, all of these different forms of a page exist. Right. And yet, the audience is never allowed to appreciate them because the only thing that gets published is the, f the full color, you know, edited version. And um, it would just seem to be a like it just would seem to be a very easy thing to do is release them digitally, you know, in in a sense where each page has has a set of layers. Right. You know, you have the color finished, you have the the finished ink, you have the finished pencils, rough pencils, um, and it would just you know I I think it would just um, be a way of a, attracting more interest to a to the digital form of a comic. I don't understand why people are still buying <laughs> paper comics, honestly. <laughs> yeah, it has been called a fetish object in the past for sure. Uh, but I think it's, uh, listen, we, we were talking earlier about like, let's get those storyboards, you know, like, let's get that storyboard book. Uh, but, and, but, but I'm asking you, I mean, since you, you're much more plugged into what's happening in comics, is is anybody doing anything like that? Because I don't, I, I don't understand. I actually, um, I self-published a book a couple of years ago, October on in 1976. It was a blacklight comic, and I released a digital PDF that went with it that had every iteration of it. So, like, I wrote it on index cards, my very first draft, and I have that. Um, and after that section, I have my script pages, and after that, I have my layouts, and then the pencils, and then inks. Kind of what you're describing in a way. Um, and it's it's done well for me. I continue to sell those on my website. 
comics are a weird market because it's so fragmented like we often talk about it and it's almost like these silos of like you have you have somebody that says they're a comics fan but what they do is they buy all spider-man books and then you have another person that's a, a comics fan and all they buy is manga and another comics fan and they all identify as comics fans but what they're looking at and getting is very different from person to person and the american comics market is kind of small especially if we talk comic books you know as opposed to graphic novels and I think it's just everybody's scraping, you know, to, to make that work. And if you get into like the comic books as object and you took that away, you know, you're probably going to take away comic book shops or, you know, there's there's a there's a network of stuff that depends on that form that people are invested in, uh, good or bad. It may not make sense. Like you say fetish object. I agree. I think the comic book format is obsolete because it used to be the cheapest format. That's the whole reason we have what we think of as like a comic book. And it's no longer that cheap. We don't even print them on the same presses that we used to print them on when they were pennies to make. And now comic books are $5 or $7 or $10 for a comic book. And it's because they're these specialized objects. But a lot of people are invested in that. Um, and, and including the readers and the collectors and stuff, you know, on both sides of creating, publishing, distro, selling, and buying. So I don't know. It's it's strange. I don't know if there's logic. It's probably more legacy and nostalgia that there's, keeps that format. I was going to say there's a lot of weird tradition wrapped up in comics, just down to the idea of even of even inking. You know, yeah. it, it's the the function that it served was just to kind of aid the color separator. Well, first off, you needed just pure black and white, but the thickness of the lines and using a brush was to give a color separator a little bit of a margin to fuck up the registration and things. We don't have to do that, but we still carry that on as a tradition in a certain ways. That's some stuff I've been thinking about a whole lot in terms of my, like my next projects of kind of just disabusing myself of like those old methods because we just don't need them anymore. We have so many more tools at our disposal, and, and that's, that's a pretty sexy idea that you uh, put forth. Man. It's definitely something to, to consider in, in, in a big way. I taught comics for a while at SVA. I taught visual narrative at SVA and comics. A lot of the people were making comics. And we would do all digital projects and they would turn them in as two-page spreads where you're essentially reading like two columns on a screen. And there's no reason for the right. two columns. It's a legacy of like, well, it's, it's a book, I, you know. <laughs> but it isn't a book. When I'm looking at it on a screen, if it only exists as digital, it's like so bizarre to think I'm going to read this halfway and then go down. Right. And then I'm going to go back to the top middle on the right. Like, it, it is bizarre. It's strange. I, I, I don't know what the answer is, but it, it is definitely odd. I used to have... Um, I, I used to think that comics were the best of both worlds in terms of the, the you know, it, it has the advantage of a, a text. You know, I mean, a traditional book that's written in text, you know, plus the advantages of, uh, you know, the, the visual image of film. Um, but now I've kind of taken <laughs> an opposite attitude. I've, I, when I pick up a comic book these days, I, I kind of feel like, I would rather be watching a film or I'd rather just read a traditional book. And in a sense, when, when I see something in a comic book form, it seems like not the best of both, but in a sense, the worst of both. And so... Um, would you think that way, even if you revisited some of uh, Kazuo Umez's work or, or some mangaka who, whose work you dug a lot? Because I, I've been reading a lot of that stuff lately and the flow is just, it's so seamless. It's almost like... The, the medium isn't even a consideration while I'm 
going through it. It just you know so there are you're absolutely right, and you know I'm glad you brought that up because I think that like Umezu and you know as far as I'm concerned, um, the guy who figured it out is uh, Tezuka, and um, it, like everything since then. I mean, for, uh, Tezuka for 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 Japanese for manga and. I would say Jack Kirby for American comics. Um, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, there just hasn't been anything that has been up to that level. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they are adding all of these embellishments. Um, I don't, I don't think that the comic book form is, uh, suitable to detailed artwork. I think the reason why Kirby and Tezuka's work um, works so well is that you, you can just flow through it. You don't have to dwell on any moment because, you know, the same sense that I like watching a film, watching animation is its ephemeral quality. And um, artists like that, you know, they really understand, they're, they're really thinking about the reader's experience as the story is unfolding more than their experience as an artist needing to get everything down that they want to get down on onto the page which is how i feel about a lot of uh the, the later comic book artists uh, the comic book artists these days are just fill panels with you know as much detail and as much rendering as much shadows and highlights as they possibly can and to me it just it just interferes with the the story being told. So um, that's yeah, that, how I feel about it. Yeah, that is the argument. I'm happy to hear that because yeah. I, 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 we look at so many comics and some of them just I can't, I, I don't connect with. And I think it is a matter of complexity in some cases. Like the amount of, it's almost an information density. Mm -hmm. um, and we often talk about the battle between inkers and colorists, which would be another version of that where you've got two two people or two teams of people doing kind of the same stuff, right? Trying to represent value and texture and all these qualities. And then it's like, okay, let's have the colorist do the same thing. And it's almost too much is happening on that page in a lot of cases, but I don't know. These are these, I love this conversation. Always good food but... for thought, man. We always leave a conversation with Peter Chung, man, with some, with some stuff to think about, man, and, and digest. Uh, Peter, is there is there anything on the horizon? Anything that you could talk about? Uh, what are you working on these days? Let's leave the people with some. Actually, I, right now I am working on a project, but unfortunately I can't talk about it. <laughs> I, I, I I literally can't talk about it because uh, may, maybe in a few months from now, if, if we want to, or a year, um, um, by then you'll know. Uh, come come back and talk to us. So. Come so, back and talk to us. But, I, but I, I am, I am in the, I'm in the thick of a project, um, working on something. It's new and it's um, something I'm very excited about. But I can't talk about it. Can you talk That's to? Great to hear. Can you talk to the press people? Get us put on the list, man. Uh, <laughs> okay. let, let us get the sneak peek so that we okay. can uh, have another okay. conversation and, and, and chat it up. Yeah, and then I'm doing my courses. It, it's on Project City, so I teach. Um, spring semester at USC. And so I've adapted my USC directing course to an online uh, for there's an online animation school called projectcity.tv. And 
you can you can buy the recordings right now it's not in session so you can buy the recordings of the of the past the, the past group um i may be depending on my current project i may be starting another um another group for that but that's uh um visual directing it's kind of my own approach to directing film not just for animation it could be it could be for live action as well what are some bullet points that that you cover in the course well um it's divided into the important thing is that it's divided into two areas of study one is the form and the other is the uh well I don't want to say the content because <laughs> um, it, it, the storytelling. So by form, I mean by you know the, the visual aspect of how you use the camera, how you use design, how you use um, flow in the way that um, things edit together. So, so a lot of that is um, useful to know regardless of what kind of story you're telling. And then the second part of the course deals with how to engage your audience um, through the actions of your characters, which is really the more important part of it. But it's something which, you know, I think that is not as um, it's not as easy to grasp for a lot of students, because it has it has a lot to do with going against a lot of you hear as conventional wisdom. So for example, I'll, I'll give you one example. So one example that I come across a lot working for studios is that there's a common belief that a character's motivation will be stronger if somebody is compelled to do something. So if they're in a life or death situation, for example, I mean, they have no choice but to do something that's going to make their motivation stronger. That's wrong. So what, what you should do instead is have your character choose to do something that they don't need to do, but they choose to do. And make everything that your character does the result of a choice, of a free choice. And that's always going to make your character stand out more. Because, because the thing is, if somebody's putting a gun to your head and making you do something, then anybody in that same situation is going to do the same thing. That's not the way to create a unique or engaging character. What you need to do is you have a character put in a situation where they are free not to do something, but they choose to do it. And that tells you what kind of character, what kind of person they are. And it gets you into understanding what is unique about their motivation. A lot of films that you see, and this happens even in big budget commercial films, I see it all the time, where people think that by putting your hero in a life or death situation, that that's enough to generate suspense. And the question of whether or not the character lives or dies is where they locate, the director tends to locate the suspense of, is he going to live or is he going to die? And that's the wrong place to locate the suspense. It's what what is your character enabled to do by surviving that is where you have to locate the suspense it's not of the life or death part it's what he's going to achieve by surviving
or what is or what is he going to be prevented from achieving by dying now, so it's not is this clear what i'm yes, saying i'm, I'm buying the course because, yes I'm buying, because I'm yeah, the recordings, yes man. yes <laughs> because a lot of people think that if you just put a um at the end of a conflict and somebody just survives the the battle or whatever situation it is um that they've won somehow but you still leave feeling unsatisfied because i i kind of go well whether the character lives or dies is just at the whim of the director and so you've just flipped a coin and said okay he lives but the fact that he lives doesn't give me any kind of lasting reason to care why he lived so um i mean one which i might give as, as an example is if somebody uh, let's say somebody is falsely accused of doing something that they didn't do. And so they're st stuck in a life or death struggle. And so you know that if they die in this battle, that they're going to they're gonna die and everybody is going to think that he's guilty of having done something. And if he survives, then he's able to f clear his name and his reputation. That's more important than whether he lives or dies. Yeah. Um, so um, I... I so, for example, I was shown a pilot by an animator who was trying to pitch a show and it involved a kid who was fighting some bad guy, some random bad guy. And like, you know, he was this little kid superhero type of character. And the bad guy was just this big, dark villain who was trying to kill him. And so they fight. The, this, this pilot, like two minute piece of animation was just them fighting. And that, at the end of it, he survives. And then um, the, the artist, you know, he asked me what I thought of it. And I said, okay, so your kid survives. So what? Like, like, why, why should I care? And he had made the mistake of thinking that whether he, whether the character lives or dies was important to the audience. It's not. Don't make that mistake. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's, um, there's some examples. I'm sold. Sounds like something that would be valuable also to comic book artists. Just storytelling. Yes. Yeah, Just storytelling right. in, in, in general, man. I think it's fantastic. Uh, so let's get out of here, man. Don't want to take up too much more of your time, Peter. Okay. When uh, this next project is, is announced, uh, let's let's reconvene, man, and, and, and talk it up. And okay, sneak, yeah. And, and sneak us an early copy. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks. Yeah, I really like what you guys are doing, and um, I'm really... Actually, I'm I'm very happy that you know you've made me a uh, <laughs> a part of your project, your ongoing project. So, um, oh man, I I enjoy these dialogues. You are a uh, storytelling hero of ours, and it is a dream come true to get some some FaceTime with you. But don't let us take up too much more of that. Uh, go do your thing. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Cartoonist Kayfabe. Okay, bye guys.